Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. If you're female, you've just been mugged, your kids are at home alone, it's 11 o'clock at night, you've just been mugged and they've taken your phone. How do you feel? As opposed to, I've left my phone in the back of a taxi. Are you aware of yourself? Do you understand the levels of how you're feeling? Am I feeling happy? Am I feeling sad? Because if you feel those things or you understand those things, you can understand that if you're feeling grumpy, that actually affects other people around you. If you're dealing with a customer who is grumpy, particularly if this is like a long-term customer, and you draw the conclusion that this person is always grumpy, as opposed to realizing that they're talking to you because there was a service failure and maybe that's why they're upset. Hi, this is your host, Colin Shaw. One of our listeners come up with a really good idea. They said that they tend to listen to the podcast whilst traveling and when they're at the gym and they find it difficult to make notes and they want to make notes because they want to have a record of it and share it with others to implement some of the ideas. So we decided that after each podcast, we're going to upload a short written summary of the podcast. Now, this will include the key takeaways and our recommended action. You can download this at beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. That again is beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. Now on with the show. So Ryan, back in the day, one of my first jobs was working at Zach Rank Xerox. Believe it or not, my job was to sell photocopiers. Okay. Only goes to show how long ago this was. You know, I think photocopiers are still around somewhere, you know, museums and other places. They are. They're still useful. They are. Yeah. Well, some of the things that when you look back and see the things we used to sell, (laughs) incredibly large machines for, anyway, but let's not go down that route. So I was doing one of the jobs I hated most, which was standing on an exhibition stand and greeting people as they came in to do demonstrations of photocopiers. So I was in my 20s or something. So is like a big conference you were at? Big exhibition, one of these big business exhibitions and stuff like that. Anyway, long and short of it is we're all sort of standing there one day and this guy came on the stand and he was dressed in a tracksuit and he looked very disheveled. And a load of senior guys there, you know, had pride themselves on the fact that they could recognize a customer and, you know, anybody that came on came on that they thought was going to buy something, they all jumped at usual stuff. Long and short of it is this guy gets ignored. And one of one of my sort of junior colleagues went over to chat with him and he ended up buying like six or seven of these <laughs> bloody enormous photocopiers that, that cost an arm and a leg. And it turned out that he was a very rich person that was running a highly successful business. It's just that he didn't look the part. And at the end of it, he said that he was only prepared to do the deal if the guy that served him got a commission for it so uh, i think this guy didn't have to work for the next 10 years or something like that Uh, (laughs) but that's what we're going to be talking a bit about today i believe and i believe from a 
from a technical viewpoint, that's called fundamental attribution error. Right. One big part of psychology is in in the general area of person perception, just figuring out what other people are doing. How do we read their emotions? How do we figure out their motivations? What conclusions do we draw about them based on appearance? All that kind of stuff. As scientists looked at this, as psychologists looked at this over the years, there was this one interesting finding that became pretty reliable to the point where they, they called it a fundamental attribution error. A usual great labeling from academia. Yeah, yeah. It sounds exciting, though, right? I mean, a lot of these bad labels sound really boring. This, the fundamental attribution error, though, that could be like the, the name of a movie. It could be. <laughs> Just not one I would go and watch. No, but one that might get made. Anyway, the point I'm making. Um, so the fundamental attribution. Oh, a bit like cats. Too soon. Too soon, Colin. We're not prepared to joke about that yet. The long and short of it. It's essentially, it deals very specifically with how we perceive motivations of ourselves and the motivations of others and how we attribute successes and failures. What do we, we attribute the causes of those successes and failures. And, and the fundamental attribution error, psychologists who are really cool call it the FAE. The FAE is essentially that when, when I see failures in others, I attribute it to some characteristic of the individual. So for instance, if you see somebody cut somebody else off in traffic, you will draw the conclusion that that person is a bad driver. Like that is a a core characteristic of them as a person. When we do something bad ourselves and there's some failure on our part, we tend to attribute that to the environment, to something external. So if I cut somebody off in traffic, oh, it's just because I was distracted because my kids were yelling in the backseat. It's not that I'm a bad driver. It's just something in the, the environment caused me to momentarily act like a bad driver. And the opposite is true for, for successes, for good things. If I do something good, I attribute it to myself as a person. If you do something good, you were just lucky. So that is the fundamental attribution error in a nutshell. So basically, the danger is it leads to a total misinterpretation of what the customer or what the person, and we can talk about the customer in a moment, would be doing and why they're doing it. Yes, it leads us to draw big conclusions from limited data about other people. That's, I mean, that's the most applicable part of the the fundamental attribution errors is what we, how we misread other people. So if you're dealing with a customer who is grumpy, particularly if this is like a long-term customer, and you draw the conclusion that this person is always grumpy, as opposed to realizing that they're talking to you because there was a service failure and maybe that's why they're upset, then you're going to misread that person going forward. And you might take a different set of approaches with them than if you'd realize that, oh, some of this is probably due to the the setting that they're in. Sure. Yeah. Now, so I was thinking about this before we started the podcast, and I was thinking about, you. so you said a couple of things that are, are really interesting there. One, which is data or lack of data. Okay. And it made me think that what organizations don't do well enough is understand customers' behavior. And the danger is they can misinterpret what people are doing and and what people are buying and why they're buying it. So let me give you an example. I used to have, there was a guy that, at, um, <laughs> a friend of mine, who used to go to work 
and he used to take a briefcase with him. And in the briefcase, he used to have a copy of the Financial Times. But he did it all for show. He never read the bloody thing. His briefcase used to have sandwiches in, okay? And I think, in fact, I'm probably (laughs) showing my age now, he used to have hairspray, believe it or not. But the point is, the Financial Times and the briefcase sort of were indications to the outside world that he was a professional business person, yeah? But actually, he wasn't. (laughs) So I guess the, the danger is, is that you look at that person and you turn around and go, you misinterpret the signals. And I guess the interesting part for me is, in that case, he had done it purposefully. So it wasn't just road rage. He'd done that as a ploy because he thought it made him look more intelligent if he was seen to be reading the Financial Times. So he did it on purpose. We all do that all the time on purpose and sometimes non-consciously. And that's part of what what makes this person perception area so interesting and, and so valuable is that it, it can be that reading other people is very difficult. I mean, some people are just naturally very good at it. They're naturally very good at kind of interpreting signals and seeing, seeing through ruses and so on. But the reality is that reading people is very complicated. And part of it is this failure to understand the importance of environment or setting. There is a, a belief in this is kind of a, a fringe belief, at least as it expressed this extremely, but there's a belief among some psychologists, particularly in the the 70s and 80s, that we're almost infinitely flexible, that if we put people in a similar situation with a similar set of pressures, we can push them in any different direction. Now, that's an extreme position. Most people believe there is kind of a core personality in there somewhere. But it is true that we, we are surprisingly responsive to environment and setting. And so when we're trying to understand other people, we need to factor in what is the setting that they're in. Going back to your experience, what misdirection might they be trying to incorporate there? Recognize that the the signals that we're getting out aren't necessarily true readings of the real person. Yeah. So it's based on the situation as as well. You're looking at the situation and you're you're then making a judgment as well. So you and I did some consulting work with an insurance company and we went down and listened in to some calls at their their call center. And this was a a health insurer. It struck me and you and I talked about it with them and you and I talked about it afterwards. I was kind of too dumb to think about this before I was listening in on these calls. But the people who are calling in to the call center of a health insurer are disproportionately under a lot of strain. Usually they are sick or a loved one is sick and they're calling because of some misunderstanding about billing or some stress about being able to pay. This is a real kind of emotionally extreme setting. So there's two things that that fundamental attribution error and other related work could maybe help that insurance company with. They should expect that their employees are going to interact with people who are in a setting, in an environment where they're going to respond based on that setting. They're going to respond in this kind of emotionally strained way. And also, the read that they get from their customers in that setting is likely to be skewed. Who those people are normally, or if they were to interact with them under different circumstances, might be entirely differently than entirely different than the the information they're getting from their customers, the read they're getting from their customers during those phone calls. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Let me try and put that into sort of practical stuff. So for me, and we've always said this, and maybe I just didn't put the label on some of this stuff. For me, you have to understand how the customer is feeling entering the experience to be able to design an experience effectively. So example we always use, we did some work with a mobile phone company years ago, and it was in the sort of lost and stolen experience. And they were effectively treating all their customers the same. If you're female, you've just been mugged, your kids are at home alone, it's 11 o'clock at night, you've just been mugged and they've taken your phone. How do you feel? As opposed to, I've left my phone in the back of a taxi. How I'm feeling based upon that situation is very different. And the response that you give the customer should be very different based upon the emotions that the customer's feeling walking into that experience and not only that for me it should be then again well what are the things that the customer would drive value so what would you what would you need to do that would make the customer get value from that experience and not only them getting value from that experience but the organization getting value from that experience does that make sense yeah it does and i think it speaks to i don't know if we want to call it an advantage an opportunity related to this way of understanding people based on settings. If you are like this health insurer or like this cell phone provider, then you can anticipate that you're going to get people who are coming to you at a point in time where you have a decent chance of predicting their emotional state because of the setting, because of the cause for that interaction. If you are are working at a retailer Figuring out the emotional state of the customers who are walking in off the street is going to be a lot harder because there's not kind of a set circumstance that's going to push people in one emotional direction or another. The flip side of that is if you're dealing with people in a short term and you're hoping to predict how they're going to do long term, then the flip side of this kicks in, which is that it it can be really, really hard to do. So interviewing job interviews is, is a classic example. There's lots of research showing that job interviews are terrible. They're just terrible predictors. It's nearly impossible to gauge how well someone will do in their job based on a job interview because job interviews tend to be so different than the work that people actually do. So put people in this artificial setting and they're feeling all this pressure and you're asking them questions that are only kind of maybe sort of related to the job that they would do. And then from that, you're going to draw all these conclusions about the person in their core? Is this a responsible person? Is this a friendly person? And the fundamental attribution error says that we discount the importance of the setting in making that. So, oh, this person can't even string two words together. Like they're, they're just a mess. Like I can't hire this person. When in the reality is that they're, they're that way because you're interviewing them as opposed to what they might be if they were in a more comfortable situation interacting with other people. Training your frontline team on how to create memories in your customers by evoking their emotions. Beyond Philosophy's unique and proven training methodology, Memory Maker Training. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. Uh, no, absolutely. And it made me think that the problem is, is that you mentioned about the retail environment. If you have employed somebody who is not emotionally intelligent, who is not good at picking these skills up, 
then the chances are that they are going to misinterpret things far more, I would have thought. I went to the doctors the other day, and the receptionist, it was like going back into the 1970s, to be honest with you, the receptionist virtually just ignored me for like four or five minutes while they were on their computer. And you just think to yourself, actually, again, health, the environment, probably uh, building on what you're saying, what you really want is somebody who's quite empathetic to be at the reception of the doctors, not somebody that's the other side and thinking whatever they think. But it also made me, let me, let me take this in a slightly different way as well. One of the things that we talk about is this hidden unmet needs, okay? And there's a couple of areas that I thought was interesting to explore. So in England, we, we play rugby, as you're no doubt aware. And they have rugby shirts, okay? So rugby shirts, I mean, they're just long sleeve shirts, typically made of cotton or something like that. Anyway, long and short of it is I actually don't really watch rugby, but I like wearing rugby shirts because they're quite comfortable and they're long sleeves and it's cold in England, et cetera, et cetera. And you never know, even though you don't play rugby, walking the streets of England, you never know when you might be called upon to join a scrum. It just happens sometimes. You never know and you want to be prepared. <laughs> you, you just never know. You, Colin Shaw, are prepared. So yeah, go ahead. It just happens. Yeah. Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> but it, it, it's interesting because, so I was wearing one at the weekend and there was some rugby on television and someone said to me, oh, did you see the game? And I went, what game? <laughs> I don't know there's a game. But <laughs> because I was wearing a rugby shirt, they thought I was into rugby. Yeah. And I thought, hmm, yes, this is the podcast coming up that we're talking about. Yeah. But what it made me then think about from this sort of hidden unmet needs part was there's clearly a whole group of people like me who don't follow rugby but like wearing rugby shirts. So if you're trying to grow the organisation, it's about identifying those additional pockets of customers who would be buying your product or service and it's an unmet need. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, going back to the point that you raised, there are people in your organization for this set of stuff that we're talking about today, people who are high in emotional intelligence who kind of get this stuff and intuitively just naturally understand it. The reason that it's it's useful for science to kind of pick this stuff apart and try to understand it better is there's lots of us who, who are not uh, emotionally intelligent and so need training, need explicit instructions on how this stuff works and what they can do about it so that they can be better at it and learn. No, absolutely. And, and you'll be aware from the work that we've done together with our training. So one of the things that we talk about, and we call it memory maker training, which is effectively identifying how the customer is feeling walking into the experience, and then converting them to feel something walking out of the experience and an emotion that drives value. And just to your point, typically what we find when we're implementing that type of training, that you got 10% of the organization, that 10, 15%, that do it naturally. The bulk of the organization needs some form of structure or some form of training or even I would call it sort of releasing the potential 
some form of guidance of of how to do those things because it doesn't come naturally to them. You've then got 10% at the bottom that are probably like the doctor's receptionist that I saw the other day that probably hasn't got an ounce of emotional intelligence and no matter how much training you gave them that you would, you would find out. I think between the two of us, I, I think that you would score higher on an emotional intelligence test than I would. I, I don't think that I'm naturally very much that way. But I can I can be taught. I can remember reading the Dale Carnegie book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, when I was young. I was 14, 15. The whole purpose of the book, the whole insight is people people enjoy talking about themselves and having someone genuinely listen to them. And I'm sure that, you know, people who are high in emotional intelligence will go, well, of course, like what? <laughs> like that's no insight at all. And yet it's been a bestseller for the last hundred years because people like me read it and go, oh, right. Yes, that would, that would be helpful. I, in fact, enjoy that. Other people might like that too, and it would make them feel better. Right. And, and a lot of times these insights are like that, where it's like, oh, well, you know, don't, don't draw too broad a conclusions of people based on a few interactions because the setting that they're in might influence that a lot. Go, oh, right. I, sh- I should be more cautious in that regard. And that makes a lot of sense. I agree. I've actually got sort of the definition or the traits of EQ in front of me. And, and as I'm reading these now, this definitely applies to this conversation. So, and for those of you that don't know about emotional intelligence, they talk about the fact that there's, there's two forms of intelligence. One's a sort of IQ, which everybody knows about, which is effectively how fast you can think of things and how much data you can process, et cetera. Or more sort of the rational thing, the emotional intelligence side is basically talking about these areas. So first is self-awareness, which is, are you aware of yourself? Do you understand the levels of how you're feeling? Yeah. Am I feeling happy? Am I feeling sad? Because if you feel those things or you understand those things, you can understand if you're feeling grumpy and you're grumpy, that actually affects other people around you. And putting this into a customer setting, if you've got an employee that's upset and grumpy, then by definition, they're not going to provide a good experience. But self-awareness is also about understanding how other people are feeling. So going back into this sort of situational thing. Second one is self-regulation, which is I know that I'm feeling upset Therefore, I'm going to fight against that. Or I know I'm particularly happy. And actually, I'm just about to talk to somebody that can't pay their mortgage or something like that because I'm, I'm in a contact center and financial services. So I've actually got to regulate myself. Third one is more sort of internal motivation. Why would you be doing these things? So it's, it's the internal motivation of someone. Fourth one is empathy. So empathy is around... And again, understanding the person, understanding the situation that they are in, and effectively being able to put yourself in their shoes. And the final one is social skills, having the social skills to know what to do and when to do it to have the greatest effect. And they actually talk about the fact that EQ is a much higher predictor of success than IQ because it's effectively around if you think of a, a number of the good leaders in organizations, they tend to have a lot of EQ. People will 
go into battle with them because of their personality and the way that they conduct themselves and the way that they can change their leadership styles to different different types of people. And it kind of covers all the ways that you interact with other people. You can be very, very intelligent and alone in a room doing great math. But if you want to interact with anybody else, it's kind of covered in those dimensions that you just talked about. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's do our usual bit. So what? What does this mean that people should do? So for me, the biggest takeaway from the fundamental attribution error, you don't need to remember the ins and outs of exactly what the FAE stands for and, and what it means. But to me, the biggest takeaway should be to understand and remember the importance of context. I'll drive this home with one one final short story. There's a very famous study that was run in psychology in the early 1900s where they took seminary students, students who were studying to be clergy, they said, oh, no, we've had this emergency come up. You need to run across campus to this building and give a talk on the Good Samaritan story. So the story where Jesus told where somebody helped out someone in need. And so these, these seminary students ran across campus one by one. And as they passed, they had set up a person in kind of a doorway as they passed by who was in need. I can't remember if, if they were pretending to be injured or, or being sick, but the seminary students needed to walk past this person in order to get to their destination. And they essentially wanted to know if this, this clergy, this pre-clergy member would stop and help this person in need. It was essentially the setting of the Good Samaritan story. And most of them didn't stop. Most of them just, just hurried on by and the conclusion was not that people are fundamentally evil and that everyone's a hypocrite and all that. It was just that the setting matters. I mean, most of these people in some other setting probably would have helped and would have stopped. And But they were in a setting where they had this, this emergency that they needed to take care of that objectively was probably not as important. You know, they could have been a few minutes late to give this lecture. But the setting cause them to react in some way. And it would it would be unfair and inaccurate to draw very broad conclusions about them as people, as a person, based on that. So just remember the setting for ourselves and for other people. Remember the setting. And the advice I would give is you need to understand the theory, okay, but you then need evidence of the practice. And what I mean by that is you actually need research, okay? So the whole danger here is that what are we talking about? We're talking about misinterpreting different groups of people, misunderstanding situations, okay? So you need to get some data that will tell you one thing or another. And you need to, just from an EQ perspective, and train people in the front lines to not make those types of judgments to, uh, and again, these are not platitudes, but some basic stuff, put yourself in their shoes. So you talk about the insurance health company. Well, how would you be if this had happened to you and you were then having these experience? But I also think that there is big opportunity there, which is in that understanding of the customer and their behavior, you can uncover unmet needs 
and typically some of those things may be more subconscious and psychological than other things so there is definitely opportunity there and it all goes down to do you understand your customers and do you understand your customers at a much deeper richer level than normal and again people have heard me talk about we do this thing called an emotional signature that looks at the difference between what customers say is important and what drives value, what's an unmet need. And doing that type of research really uncovers some hidden gems, basically. So anyway, I hope that's been of uh, use for people today. If you have any comments, if you've got any suggestions on anything that we should be covering, then please let us know. Just drop us an email at contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com. And look forward to talking to you next week. Don't forget to download a short written summary of the show by going to beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.